from Pacific's perspective, the expectation is that the teams on the ground are running the resort. They're not coming in saying, hey, you got to make more snow over on Euler's. They're not saying that, shit, you need muscles on the menu. You know, that's something that the on the ground team is going to ultimately be responsible for. We're not going to operate in a vacuum anymore. uh, But in reality, we never did. You know, we're either working for a federal receiver or we're working for the guys at Pacific. And this isn't a whack on Michael Goldberg by any stretch because he helped us get through this, but I'd much rather be connected with the Pacific guys uh, on a long-term scenario. Welcome to the storm. I'm your host, Stuart Winchester. It finally happened. Jay Peak has a new prospective owner, and it's a good one. Utah-based Pacific Group Resorts. Before we get to that, Welcome back to the storm, everybody. It has been a long time, and I am pumped to be back here behind the mic. For those of you listening for the first time, welcome. I would like to invite you to join the full storm community by subscribing to the storm skiing newsletter at stormskiing.com. I love the pod, but in reality, this is just a small part of the storm. This whole operation revolves around the email newsletter which will deliver new pods and at least 100 articles per year exploring the world of lift served skiing that we all love so much. And this thing goes year round. This is not a seasonal operation. So please join us. Get in on the storm at stormskiing.com. You can also follow the storm on Twitter or Instagram at Stormski Journal. Here's another way to get great content. You can subscribe to Mountain Gazette. I have been pouring through issue 197 since it hit my mailbox this summer, and it is just amazing. The first thing that hits you is a 12-page mountain climbing photo spread by Jimmy Chin. I had to clip in just to look at this thing. Then there is an absolutely mesmerizing story by M. John Fahey about how he got tangled up with a career criminal, a rad bike spread by Emily Tidwell, a long mingle with some Wyoming bighorns, an unbelievable view of the Guggenheim and Bilbao as you've probably never considered it, and just so much more. This thing is 140 pages and vanishingly few of them are clotted with ads. Even though it's already shipped, there is still time to get the biggest issue of the biggest outdoor magazine ever. Go to mountaingazette.com to lock in your subscription today. Mountain Gazette, when in doubt, Go higher. Mountain Gazette is a lot of fun, but you know what's not a lot of fun? Having your ski season end with an injury. If you're a skier, you run the risk of getting hurt. And what's worse than wiping out? Massive ER bills. Not to mention less time on the slopes. That's why Spot Insurance partners with some of the biggest names in the ski industry, like Icon Pass, Jackson Hole, Taos and more to offer custom injury coverage with lift tickets and season passes. Spot easily plugs into your checkout flow and does all the heavy lifting to ensure that your skiers are covered. If your guests get hurt, a spot policy can pay up to $25,000 of their out-of-pocket medical bills per incident with zero deductible. When your skiers are safe from massive medical costs, They spend more time on the mountain without the fear of an injury holding them back. And that's peace of mind they won't find anywhere else. 
Go visit GetSpot.com to partner with Spot and show your community that you have their back when things go sideways. To all skiers, make sure your mountain has Spot so you're not blindsided by medical bills if you wipe out, because that's painful enough. Learn more at GetSpot.com. That's GetSpot.com. All right, back to the podcast. Episode 96, Steve Wright, President and General Manager of J. Peak Vermont. It's finally happening. After six years in legal purgatory, J. Peak is close to having a new owner. Last week, Pacific Group Resorts placed the winning bid for J. Peak, tossing down 76 mil for the rights to what is arguably the best pure skiers ski area in New England. How we got here is a long labyrinthian story that I will not go into here, except to say that the feds took control of J-Peak back in 2016 after former owner Ariel Kuros and several associates scammed foreign investors out of hundreds of millions of dollars. The ski area was placed into receivership along with sister resort Burke and the receiver, Michael Goldberg, has been working for six years to find a buyer. Should the courts approve the sale, JPEAK will join Pacific Group Resort's portfolio of five existing ski areas, including Ragged Mountain, New Hampshire, Wisp in Maryland, Wintergreen, Virginia, Powderhorn, Colorado, and Mount Washington Alpine in British Columbia. It's an eclectic group and it's an eclectic company, one that skiers will be happy to hear tends to leave local decisions to local management. When I hosted Ragged Mountain GM Eric Barnes on this podcast in April, he said, quote, I run ragged, end quote. To Jay skiers who want Jay to stay Jay, that's going to matter a hell of a lot. But what's going to matter even more is who is running Jay. For the past six years, that has been Steve Wright, who has orchestrated one of the most improbable turnarounds in the history of American skiing. Remember, in 2016, there was no Vail in New England. There was no such thing as Altera, no such thing as the Icon Pass. But as both of those Goliaths have arrived in Vermont, toting their cheap multi-mountain passes that compete directly with Jay Peak, the mountains business has only grown stronger. It has grown in spite of COVID, in spite of Vermont's strictest in the nation travel restrictions during the 2020 to 21 ski season, in spite of a two-year Canadian border shutdown that iced half of Jay's traditional business, and in spite of the business pressures that everyone has been feeling. He'll be the last one to admit it, but a lot of credit for that goes to Steve Wright, and as we approach this milestone in Jay's history, I had to get into his head and take stock of this whole process. Let's do it. My guest today has been the president and general manager of Jay Peak Vermont since 2016. Jay Peak regularly leads New England in snowfall, with 359 average annual inches burying more than 100 acres of the ski area's legendary glades. The mountain has nine lifts serving 385 acres of terrain on a 2,153-foot vertical drop. Jay Peak has been the number one resort for Indy Pass Redemptions for two consecutive ski seasons. Earlier this month, Utah-based Pacific Group Resorts, which owns five other North American ski areas, placed the winning bid in an auction to purchase Jay Peak. 
He has worked at Jay Peak since 2004. He is a very good friend of the storm. Steve Wright is my guest. Steve, so good to have you back. Thank you so much for joining us at this very busy time. How are you doing today? Uh, hey, Stuart. I'm doing well. Uh, appreciate you uh, asking me to come on. Well, I want to start with a huge congratulations on this huge step toward finally getting out of this mess that you found yourself in for the past six years. How are you feeling about finally moving past the EB-5 scandal era and into an era of stable ownership? Um, I feel great. I mean, I, I um, you know, it's been a, it's almost, almost seven years of, you know, kind of this interim feel to the way that uh, we've held ourselves here at the mountain. And it's, uh, it's exciting to have an opportunity to move forward. I think that, um, you know, we're all looking forward to getting past this pre-closing uh, period, because obviously there's a lot of, there's a lot of heavy lifting happening here with respect to, you know, putting together, you know, closing adjustments, things like that. But, um, you know, we're excited to move forward and we're, we're even more excited to be doing so with uh, the folks at PGRI. So one of the things that's marked your tenure, Steve, and I'm saying this as someone looking from the outside in is you're going to be the last one to worry about yourself. You've really put your employees first, your pass holders first. How has the reaction been from your community to this announcement that PGRI is likely to be the next owner of JPEG? I mean, it's been um, not only has it been positive, which is probably something that you'd expect me to say, but it's been uh, very informed. Um, it's and and that's not particularly surprising to me, right? The um, the community, our both our our local community and our community of like stakeholders, season pass holders, homeowners, um, that sort of thing, are all very well seem very well educated on who PGRI is what it is that they focus on, how their other resorts operate. Um, and they have been paying attention to the narrative kind of uh, since last week about what their plans for JP are in terms of, um, you know, how they'll expect us to manage ourselves um, in a way that is a little bit surprising even to me, but really shouldn't be. I've got folks calling me, telling me how things are going to go from here. Um, and I just kind of nod and say, all right, that's great. This sounds good. I appreciate you giving me the heads up. <laughs> how much do you think it helps, Steve, that PGRI is not new to New England? In fact, Ragged Mountain in New Hampshire was their first resort back in 2007. So they have a history of understanding New England, understanding New England skiers, Building a good ski experience with a mountain that, frankly, does not have is not as blessed as Jay Peak naturally with snowfall, to say the least. How much do you think it helps that they are not new to this neighborhood and people are familiar with the way that they operate a ski resort? Yeah, I mean, I think they, you know, it's good that they they have that presence here because they understand the markets that drive into Ragged. They understand the markets that sort of um, you know drive into Wintergreen and, and Wisp. I think. Having a Vermont asset will be uh, interesting for them because there's much more of a destination sense that that JP provides. But also, you know, the nuance of running a ski resort, a business uh, even, but certainly a ski resort uh, in the state of Vermont, that nuance from an operational kind of permitting, um, you know, state involvement perspective is something uh, that will be new to them that will present um, its own, I'm choosing my words as carefully as I can here, um, it's, its own slate of, uh, of challenges and, and opportunities with, uh, with the state of Vermont. So, um, you know, all of that, all of that to say, these, these are operators, right? This isn't a PE, it's not a, 
uh, a hotel consortium. These these guys are ski and snowboard resort operators. And um, when when you connect back to that, there's a lot of, of sort of hopefulness that we have as a result of it. How big of a sense of relief is that for you that you don't have to, to explain to these guys how to turn the lifts on? I mean, they they have five ski areas in five vastly different markets. And that has to, you have to feel pretty good about working with them as folks that will understand JP. Yeah. I mean, and we talked about that at a, at a um, staffing level here before the auction, even that, you know, there were a couple of different roads that this could go down. You know, you go with a private equity firm and the concern really is the bottom right-hand corner. Um, you, you get in with a, a group of hoteliers and they get rooms, they get RevPAR and ADR and occupancy and all that but they might not understand why snowmaking is so expensive the week before Christmas or why uh, we're continuing to make snow in early March and why is it so expensive, that sort of thing. So when you get operators in here, you get to gin a hell of a lot more quickly than you would with you know some of the other potential buyers that were out there. Yeah, I want to get into PGR a little bit uh, in, in a moment, but first I want to go back and talk about the sales process. I mean, 2016, that just feels like a generation ago. Looking back, did you ever imagine in April 2016 when this all went down that it would take six and a half years before Jay Peak found a new owner? Well, I, I, you know, I can barely remember what the hell I did yesterday, much less what I was thinking six and a half years ago. I know I was thinking other thoughts six and a half years ago. I wasn't really worried about the sale as much as I was worried uh, that somebody would end up putting a fence around this place. But um, mm -hmm. um, I, I knew that it wasn't going to be quick. Right. I knew that, you know, the, the entire morass of, of EB5 and, and the group of investors and what they were due and what they weren't due um, was going to take time to unwind. And I knew that the sales process, once it once it started, was not going to be, you know, here's a widget. It's five dollars by the widget. It's, it, mm -hmm. There was a lot to this and it was going to take a pretty sophisticated buyer or somebody that would get sophisticated very quickly uh, to understand, um, you know, the entire JP model, both from an operational perspective, but more importantly, from an ownership and thus the the receivership perspective. So, you know, a long way around saying I knew it wasn't going to be quick. <laughs> and you happen to hit at a very interesting historical moment when there were a lot of changes to New England skiing. There were a lot of changes to the world, some pretty unexpected events. I say this with all respect to what you and your team have had to go through, but why did it take so long? Why did it take six and a half years? Well, I think for those reasons, you know, for, for those reasons of, you know, somebody coming in and doing a, a, a three and a half, four hour tour of the property, you see the assets that were built. But when you sit down to start to do, you know, diligence around the financials, it can be a little bit more, uh, a little bit confusing to understand well, what are these partnerships things you know why is the you know why is the accounting still set up this way and you're funding you know partnerships in a way that doesn't make sense to me the balance sheet pnls things like that don't look completely clean there's pieces on this balance sheet that don't really make a lot of sense to me and a lot of that was you know michael goldberg the the receiver that was appointed by the feds had to keep the structure in place until the asset you know until the asset closes um and a lot of the architecture behind that was confusing to folks who hadn't been involved with buying a, an asset and receivership. So I think that that really played into, you know, the length of time um, that, 
the sales process took. Obviously, the pandemic got in the middle of that and screwed things up a little bit, too. When you say partnerships, Steve, are you talking about Burke and the way that your systems were tied together? No, I'm talking about partnerships in terms of the different phases of EB-5 development here. Okay. So we were going along, you know, every once in a while, there'd be a news drop about this or that party is interested in JPEG. When And then COVID came along and, and Goldberg basically said it came to a halt. When did this thing start to pick up momentum again? Was it PGR driving this or was there a different catalyst? No, I mean, there was, you know, there was interest, you know, six or eight months after we went into receivership and we got things, for lack of a better word, stabilized. You know, there was the sales process, the marketing process of the property started. And, um, and you know, the, the guys at, at Pacific were, were early on sort of interested and you know, they kicked around like uh, like everybody else did. We went into the pandemic, things got put on the shelf. And then um, as we got through that first winter of the pandemic, um, everybody started to get involved again. I wouldn't say uh, PGRI necessarily drove the process, but they were always part of it. So when PGRI finally threw down, put their chips on the table on August 1st, said, we're willing to put $58 million up and make that public. What was the reaction from that community of potential buyers, Steve? Was there this sudden realization that, uh-oh, if we want JPEG, we need to move. This is actually happening. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it, it was emblematic of how serious the folks at Pacific were um, about, about acquiring Jay. And I think that it signaled to the rest of the market that this process is not only well underway, but it's getting into the late innings of this. And if we're serious about it, then we too need to you know, step up and get serious, equally serious. What was the time period like from August 1st when PGR put that bid down and September 7th when they held the auction. What was that period like for you? What was it like around the resort? It was a shit show. <laughs> it was, uh, it was, it was for me personally, honestly, it was the most stressful time that I've had in the last seven years. Exponentially more stressful than the receivership, the first days of receivership, the pandemic, any of it. Um, it was because, as you said, it signaled to the market that the process was getting increasingly serious and both existing and new potential buyers came out of the absolute woodwork. Um, and e these are folks that have already been here, wanted to come again. They were folks that hadn't been here at all, wanted to come for the first time. Uh, and they wanted to, they wanted to obviously and understandably dig into the financials at a level uh, that required a lot of time. Uh, the headlines and the media started to pick up on that. So there was a lot of request for reach outs and updates and what does this mean and that sort of thing. And the temperature here within the staff started to jump up uh, as well. It was a it was a very busy period for us here at the resort with weddings and, and hockey tournaments and golf rounds and that sort of thing. So that was overlaid against it. But the, the volume of everything uh, really, really increased. Not to take this into like a self-improvement podcast space, Steve, but <laughs> how, how did you personally handle that? Because anyone who's worked with you in the media knows that you're very responsive. I, I imagine you have, you know, a large constituency of season pass holders, regular skiers who are also in touch with you. Then you have all these potential buyers. How do you how do you keep your head, keep calm and and not sort of get exasperated and and lose it? And how do you manage to get back to everyone? It's it's a, it's very uh, you know, some people can handle that well. Some people can't. How do you approach that? 
Well, I guess I would answer it a few ways. I, di I didn't always do it well. Um, I didn't always get back to everybody that I should. Um, you know, honestly, I, I didn't care as much about getting back to the media as I did making sure that, you know, the staff, um, you know, felt like we were still inside of a manageable experience. And that was, you know, for me, that was the most difficult part is because I didn't always feel like, like it was particularly manageable. But you know, we didn't, none of us in the leadership team here had the luxury of sort of letting anybody else see that. Um, the, the day of the auction for me was uh, was very difficult, and I'm sure we'll get into that conversation at some point. But, um, you know, really just kind of keeping our eyes on what was most important, which was ultimately getting to the finish line and making sure that the staff was in, you know, something resembling one piece by the time we got there. That's what sort of kept our wits about us. All right, so let's talk about the auction. September 7th, take us into that room. And I, I say room with air quotes. It's I, I believe it took place on a Zoom or something like that. But what was the energy like as the various bidders took their places on screen and prepared to spend tens of millions of dollars on your resort? Well, I, I very quickly um, moved into sort of media management role that morning. Uh, there was, by 10 o'clock in the morning, we had several... Uh, media outlets here on campus. And by noon or so, there was, you know, more than a dozen driving around uh, looking for looking for updates. So I pretty much stayed stayed with them, but stayed connected with with Michael. Um, and he kept me updated to the extent that he could. You know, we all sort of thought that this would be a few hour experience. Uh, and it ended up being uh, quite a bit quite a bit more. I was on camera with a, with a bunch of different TV outlets with a phone in my pocket going off the whole time with updates about what was going on. And the, the media outlets knew it. And they also knew that I couldn't say anything about it. So it was, that was a awkward dance for most of the afternoon. So the auction went on for seven hours. How badly did you feel the PGR wanted this as they kept ticking the bid higher? Well, I just, it, you know, it became increasingly apparent uh, that that um, that they were very serious about about acquiring JP. Obviously, that leaves uh, that leaves me now looking backwards with a, with a good feeling. Uh, there's some obvious pressure associated with that too. Um, but it was it was apparent that everybody involved with this auction process who hung on as long as they could through the process uh, were pushing hard to uh, to get their arms around Jay. So it's uh, you know it's a, it's a good feeling, and I've shared it with staff multiple times that, you know, the reason that that auction took seven hours isn't because of uh, the natural snow we get. It's not because of our whatever our brand position is or anything else you want to say about JP. It's because the staff here for the last seven years kind of put their heads down and ground out a profit multiple um, that was integrated into a formula that couldn't be ignored. And if it wasn't for them, if it wasn't for them ignoring the headlines, ignoring the chat rooms of everybody telling us what was happening and you know what we did wrong and what we needed to do better, if it wasn't for that staff cohort ignoring that and caring only about each other, essentially, and JP and getting that profit number up, that auction wouldn't have taken seven hours. It was really a remarkable turnaround, and I want to get into that in a little bit. First, I want to just focus for a moment on the auction. Uh, PGRI was facing off against two other bidders. We don't know their identity, and I imagine you're not going to tell yeah. me that. What can you tell me about the competing bidders? Well, yeah, I don't want to get into uh, to who they were out of respect for, for them, basically. Uh, two good outfits. 
Um, they pushed as hard as they possibly could uh, through the process. I got texts from both of them as they uh, ended up bailing out saying, hey, I can't tell you how disappointed we are that we didn't uh, get JPEAK. Uh, we think a lot of what you guys did. We think a lot of where your future's headed. Uh, but the folks uh, at PGRI uh, apparently think a lot more about it. So, um, you know, it's it, it was a uh, it was good to feel uh, wanted, <laughs> honestly, through that process. After seven years of feeling like, you know, you know, the, the abandoned, uh, the abandoned step kid, it, 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 uh, it felt good to, to look at it through the lens of, uh, that auction and what that meant, uh, to, you know, what it ultimately was going to mean to the staff here. So 76 million was PGRI's final bid. Uh, they definitely wanted it. This is not over yet necessarily lay this out for us, Steve, what needs to happen for PGRI to close this deal and take ownership of JP? Yeah, I mean, the, the leadership team at, at PGRI is, you know, in this, um, you know, stage right now where they don't own the asset, but they need to do a lot of the, the background and foreground work uh, to get set up, making the assumption that they will. So, you know, they're working uh, where they can with with myself and, and staff here trying to trying to get ourselves aligned for the closing. There's obviously the, the ground lease transfer with the state of Vermont that has to happen and, you know, uh, some other pieces that will happen at the, you know, at the end of any sale, whether it's, you know, retiring certain pieces of, of debt or, you know, uh, reclassifying licenses and permits, things like that. But it's all pretty much perfunctory. And um, these guys have done it before. Uh, so they know exactly what it takes to to get there. Um, and, the you know, the time frame will be, as as they've said in their in our press releases, sometime as we as we edge deeper into the fall. But before the start of the uh the ski season. So you said several times, Steve, throughout the sales process that the potential bidders, quote, shared Jay's values. Talk about what that means in the context of PGRI and why these two entities, JPEAK and PGRI, are a good fit for each other. Yeah, I mean, I would sort of classify it a couple of different ways. There are a lot of the, a lot of folks that were interested uh, in JPEAK that appeared, and I'll, and I'll use that word to to share our values. And I, only, I don't say that um, in a negative sort of way, but it, you know, I didn't know who they were. They simply came to the table. They would look at our marketing. They would look at, you know, what we would say about ourselves in our outbound marketing and, and what appeared in headlines. And they certainly liked that. They liked the employee and guest forward culture, uh, you know, the affordability angle that is important to us here. And they believed in that. They told us they believed in that. I think the nuance is that you look at an outfit like Pacific and they've lived it, right? They're, they're the other brands that they uh, own um, and represent and sort of fill that middle niche in the market where it's, it's uh, great skiing and great snowboarding and, and resorts that care about the product that get put out, but also care about making sure that they have pricing and products and, and programming that is designed you know, to get access to the middle of the market and to make sure that people, you know, can afford to come and, and ski and ride there. And I increasingly, and you know better than anybody that, you know, that that tranche is becoming smaller. Mm -hmm. uh, so being able to add a, a, a big name resort into that kind of ideology, I think for them is ultimately going to be important in expanding. 
you know, there's there's some concern out there, Steve, and this is not necessarily rooted in PGRI. I think it's just a reflection of how well you and your team have run the resort for the past six years. But I, I keep hearing this from pass holders. We want Jay to stay Jay, and they always frame it that same way. And I think what they're concerned with here is, will we still be able to ski wherever we want as far as the glades go? Will we not have this, you know, massive lift lines we've seen at other places? Will we still be open into May? That sort of experiential, atmospheric thing that makes Jay a really special ski area and sort of maximizes the potential of this naturally gifted mountain with all the snow you get. What is your message to those folks who are concerned with PGRI, quote, keeping JJ? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a good question, and it's one that continues to come up. I was on with... Um... VPR, NPR last week, and, the, and it was a live segment. And the first two callers that called in literally said, is Jay going to remain Jay? And can we continue to have a a, uh, a flexible uphill policy? Which, right? <laughs> and so the first two, I, I shouldn't be surprised about that. But, you know, I think there's an intangible about this place that it's tough for some people to put words against so that they simply say, will Jay stay Jay? Right. And I think that that is everything from pulling up and not spending $35 to park to, you know, having manageable lift lines, uh, even on the weekends, having a um, flexible uphill policy or side country policy or the, the ability to, to get into the woods, um, uh, affordable food, affordable weekend programs for their kids, things like that. Um, you know, it's kind of a mentality that you know, it's a ski resort that all of us that work here and run this place would want to have access to if we didn't have access to this place. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so and I, and I think that that if you look across the PGRI portfolio, those are a lot of the same things that um, those resorts care about. You know, if you look at Ragged, if you look at Wisp, if you look at, uh, at Wintergreen, they, they share a lot of that sensibility. They might not have a name attached to it the way that Jay does. But, you know, the fact that they believe that belief system is the same is very encouraging for us. You know, one thing that I think should also be encouraging to pass holders is when I hosted Ragged Mountain GM Eric Barnes on the podcast earlier this year, I said, how do you work with PGRI to run Ragged? And he said, I run Ragged. You have been operating on an island for a long time and and kind of had a lot of autonomy, I think, to do what you wanted. What's your sense now of how you'll work with PGRI Central to run JP? Because it seems to me that you've been running it. That's Jay has been Jay as you've been running it. And that seems like to continue from my point of view, but how do you feel about it? I know it's early in the process. Yeah. I mean, the way that we, that we run it here uh, has been successful. I mean, you look at where we were in fiscal 14, fiscal 15, and the numbers that we either were or were not throwing. Uh, and you look at where, you know, we got to even post pandemic with our, you know, EBITDA numbers, um, you know, from from Pacific's perspective, they the, the expectation is that that the teams on the ground are running a resort, especially to the extent that you know there's comfortability with the with the profit multiple that's being thrown. They'll certainly jump in when those numbers get sideways or drop back a little bit, but you know they're not you know exp- they're not coming in saying, "Hey, we, you got to make more snow on uh, uh, you know over on Euler's, Right? Mm-hmm. They're not coming in saying. You know this uh, this particular ticket product needs to be eight dollars more, and they're not saying that you shit you need muscles on the menu. That, that's <laughs> something you know. That's something that the on the ground team is going to ultimately be be responsible for. We're not going to operate in a vacuum anymore. 
Uh, but in reality, we never did. You know, we're either working for a federal receiver or we're working for the for the guys at Pacific. And this isn't a whack on Michael Goldberg by any stretch because he helped us get through this. But I'd much rather be uh, connected with the Pacific guys uh, on a long term uh, scenario. So let's get into the numbers for a second here. When he announced PGRI's $58 million bid on August 1st, Michael Goldberg, the receiver, he said, quote, when the receiver took over the J Peak Resort in April 2016, it was on the verge of collapse, having little money and making very little profit. In fact, the receiver had many sleepless nights during the summer of 2016, wondering if he would be able to even make payroll. Now, after more than six years, the J Peak Resort is significantly more profitable and hundreds of jobs have been saved. The receiver attributes this success to his top-notch management team and the dedicated employees who work tirelessly to make J-Peak one of the greatest ski resorts in the country. End quote. Steve, it really was remarkable. How were you and your team able to turn Jay to profitability as Vail came in and Altera came in and COVID ruined everything and Vermont had these strict travel restrictions and the Canadian border closed? You had everything working against you and you made the resort better. How did you guys do it? Well, I mean, and let me say this out of the outset because I, you know, I've gotten a lot of this over the last week. That the notion that a lot of that uh, credit sits with me specifically is, is you know, not a joke, but it's pretty. It's <laughs> it's not accurate. It's uh, you know, I ended up being a cheerleader, honestly, through the six and a half seven year process, mm-hmm. um, telling everyone that it'd be fine, even in, in instances where I wasn't completely convinced of that. So I, if if I get credit for that, great. But the reality is, is you know, the folks that came to work every day that, um, you know, made beds and uh, manned our, our, our senres and taught skiing and snowboarding and worked in our kitchens uh, and lifeguarded in our water parks. Those are the those are really the folks that that pushed that that multiple up. And it was the, the environment was difficult because of how high profile the entire EB5 situation was and, and the, the reality that everybody is connected, everybody's on social media, everybody reads Digger, everybody reads every publication, you know, within 200 miles of here. And it's, and it's tough when you're a, a lifeguard reading those headlines to say to yourself, is this a place that I want to work for? Is this a place yeah. I believe in enough to, to go forward with it? Um, and so it's a testament to those folks that they stuck it out and that we're now within sight of the, you know, the final inning of this thing. It's, it really, it really is remarkable to me that, um, that they stuck through this. I mean, I, I, I was in a position where I felt like I kind of had to, but the, yeah. these, um, these other folks, these 1100,000 employees had a hell of a lot of options, especially in the last two years when this labor economy has swung decidedly in favor of the worker, they could have gone other places had more secure environments, probably made more money, but they believed enough in what we do here and believed enough in this mountain and the, and the community to stick through it. And I, w- I will never be able to say thank you enough to them for doing that. So one set of questions, I'm sure you're getting a lot as we move towards some sense of normalcy at JP for the first time in a long time is you've said that potential buyers were aware that the resort had capital needs on top of the sales price. So when we spoke on this podcast two years ago, you laid out your top big ticket items as a new Bonaventure quad, possible jet replacement, though you didn't seem 100% certain about that, 
How are you feeling about those priorities two years later? And what else would you add to that list of CapEx needs? I mean, it's still largely the same, right? You look at the infrastructure that we have here. I mean, even with the size of JP, which is sort of a middle to upper middle um, space within the ski industry, from an infrastructure perspective, we probably have the biggest one in New England. Mm-hmm. Um, and in terms of rooms with over 900 rooms, three hotels, ice rink, uh, golf course, uh, obviously indoor water park, all of that infrastructure needs um, support. So there's there's back of the house capex that isn't the sexiest thing in the world, but certainly has to happen to keep things moving here. So that's going to happen um, right away, even though we've taken care of, you know, critical guest uh, guest experience items and life safety items. Uh, all through the the receivership, there's still some other pieces that need to be you know bolstered uh, in terms of infrastructure. And then you know quickly you spin back into you know s- replacing the Bonnie, uh, possibly taking the Bonnie and 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 using that where the triple is, taking the triple, possibly putting that where the double is, and then retiring the double. Um, that's a cadencing that is going to take some time, but you know Pacific is on board with that. They're on board with this. Uh, the reality that we need more access to more water for our snowmaking system, which is, you know, can be a big number too. Um, we've got a couple of, um, you know, back of the house maintenance buildings that need to be replaced and, and things like that. So I think that very quickly after the close, we'll, we'll sit down with the leadership and map out a calendar of what that looks like going forward over the next bunch of years, uh, putting a priority on both front of the house issues like, you know, lifts and snowmaking, things like that, but also back of the house issues like infrastructure support that is that's needed as well. The the Bonnie is the one that gets mentioned the most as I talk to new, to pass holders. Are you pushing for a high speed lift there? Do you, do you think that that's what it needs to be upgraded to? And should it be a four or a six? Yeah, I, I don't have any thought that that should be a six, quite frankly. Um, I, I think that the uh, conversation is is going to be between, you know, an, an OG uh, fixed grip versus a uh, versus a detached that maybe you're not running at 100 all the time. But that's a that's a conversation that we can bring in much better minds than my own to uh, feed back on that and come up with it with a good solution. So as I mentioned in the intro, JP has been the number one ski area for redemptions on the Indy Pass since joining the coalition in the fall of 2020. How are you feeling about JP's future on the Indy Pass, Steve? Yeah, I mean, it's, that's, that's another piece, you know, that, um, you know, we we brought them on board a couple of years ago or they brought us on board, however, you, whatever lens you look at there. And it's been real successful for us for a couple of years. We're on it again for this coming year. I think that's just going to be another piece that gets added into the you know the matrix when we sit down and have these conversations i mean ultimately the first responsibility pacific will have is 2j right what is there what is the best product mix to put j in a a position to succeed going forward um and you know that'll just be something that we have to to factor in i like doug i like um you know, what it says about JPEAK that we're part of that pass. And I'm sure that the pass loves what it says about them to have JPEAK on board. Um, and I know that, um, you know, the leadership at, at Pacific has seen, you know, what we've done with them and they all consider it impressive. And all of that will get factored into the decisions that we make going forward for sure. So last year we spoke about lift ticket prices and, and Jay's low lift ticket prices and commitment to that. Uh, your top 
lift ticket was $86 last year. It looks like you're going to 99 this coming season. Not surprising given all the inflationary pressures we're seeing. Stowe is about to hit 199 Do you have a sense of whether PGRI will maintain that commitment to these relatively low lift ticket prices at JPEAK? Yeah, uh, 96 we were last year, not 86. But yeah, we, we went up uh, three bucks this year. But that, that okay. um, you know, again, that that's going to be a decision that PGRI largely puts in our hands, right? Unless, mm-hmm. you know, um, unless we make a decision that is, they believe to be categorically or catastrophically wrong, I think they're going to listen to the arguments that we make here. And I think part of what they believe in, again, by virtue of the resorts that they have and how they manage themselves, that affordability piece needs to continue. Um, you know, it, we're at some point, obviously, we'll crack the $100 mark. Um, and that, you know, tends to be window dressing, as you know. I think the important piece will be to continue to provide a multitude of options uh, that attract, you know, a, a bunch of different segments of the market to come here and, and, and ski and ride. And I can't, you know, strategically... You know, Stowe, the other, you know, the other Vail resorts, Altar resorts have their own strategies. I'm not in a position to argue with them. I'm just simply here to say that, you know, who Jay Peak is needs to be who Jay Peak is in the future. All right. You've stayed open to May, into May for the past several seasons, COVID accepted. You hit May 14th last year. Does PGRI believe in the long season? Will that continue at Jay? Yeah, I mean, I'd answer it the same way, honestly, Stuart. They're, they're going to say, you know, continue to run the place in a way that makes sense and will likely continue to support that. We have found a way to run late season that is at worst cost neutral and at times may even uh, make us a little bit of money. Uh, But largely us running into May is not about a big uh, increasing our cash position. It's about being, you know, true to who we think JP is. All right, Steve, I will end this interview with the same question I asked you last time. West Bowl expansion, any chance in hell that happens? None. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) We'll walk off on that. Steve, I know that you are beyond busy. I cannot thank you enough for giving me this window. I really appreciate it. I will see you at JPEAK this year, and, uh, and I wish you the best of luck with this transition. Yeah, I, I, I want to say thank you too, Stuart. You've uh, reported fair uh, from the outset on this thing. And, and you know, I won't call it a supporter because you can't say that about, uh, you know, independent media. But I will say that you've been fair through the process and that's meant a lot to me and to the team here. So thank you. I appreciate that, Steve. That's Steve Wright, President and General Manager of JP Vermont. Steve, a pleasure as always. Talk about being the right man for the moment. There are so many ways that that whole process at JP could have gone sideways over the past six years. And Steve held us together every step of the way. He's a modest guy and he's not ever going to admit it, but I think that thing goes very differently without Steve there. And there are a lot of people to see that thing the same way. Okay, this is the first of many, many podcasts coming your way over the next several months. I already have one episode in the can with Colorado Sun reporter Jason Blevins. Next week, I am talking to Pat's Peak GM, Chris Blomback. Then we have got the heads of Sun Valley, Brundage, Nubs Knob, Boyne Resorts, Winter Park, Bromley, Monarch, Sundance, Vail Mountain, probably in that order. We'll see what happens. Many more scheduled after that. It is back on. This was, I'll admit, a longer than expected hiatus, and I want to own that. 
I've said several times on the podcast that this thing does not pause for the summer, and that is always my intention. But things do not always work out the way that you plan in this game. So, forward we go. We have got weekly podcasts scheduled up until the holiday season when the pod traditionally steps back for a few weeks while resort operators get through their busiest time of the year and we all enjoy the holidays. To get these new podcasts in the moment they are live, please sign up for the Storm Skiing newsletter at stormskiing.com. There are free and paid tiers of the newsletter and paid subscribers do receive these podcasts three days before everyone else. You can also follow the storm on Twitter and Instagram at Storm Ski Journal. Until next time, stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester, and I will talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.